I think God's glory is better represented and biblically in the biblical story in terms of God's loving sacrifice in laying himself down for us. I think that's how he displays his glory. He doesn't want to punish, but he has that punishment there because part of his attribute is holiness, right? That there has to be some consequence. If God had his way while keeping our free will intact, he would have had every one of us come to faith, thereby the only wrath that all humanity for all time would ever feel in eternity was already placed on Christ. Unfortunately, our free will dictates that some of us don't choose that. We reject God. Under TULIP, there necessarily, because of unconditional election, there has to be by default unconditional reprobation. Those that are predetermined to hell with zero chance of salvation. Is God a monster under this system? If if he is predetermining some to never have the opportunity to come to the end of themselves and say, I am undone, I am a sinner, I am wretched, save me, I throw myself at your mercy, I think that opportunity is available for all. You know, you even look at the prodigal son, he came to his senses He said, you know, maybe my dad will take me back as a servant, a hired hand. But what does the father do? He's, number one, he's looking out for his son. He sees him a long ways off. To me, that hints at he's hoping for his son to come back. Number two, he he runs. He picks up his, his robe or whatever and runs, which is an undignified thing. He didn't care about his pride ran out to him and lavishes his love on him. That is a picture of God's desire for all of us to be saved. Welcome to the Days of Noah podcast, where we talk all things biblical, supernatural, and strange. Today, my friend Don joins me in studio. It's been a while since we've had Don on the show, and, uh, well, this one was actually spurred by a Twitter post that I had put online. Uh, It's no secret to those that know me that I am, well, fiercely anti-Calvinist. And that's not a slam on any of my Christian uh, brothers and sisters who believe in the Tulip Reformed theology known as Calvinism. Um, I have nothing against you personally. I just feel like this theology uh, is a misrepresentation of God's character and of the biblical text. That there's actually a more accurate better understanding of the verses that are often used to support this system. So I had posted a reply on Twitter that Don thought was puzzling, (laughs) and as someone who believes in that tulip uh, five-point Calvinism, uh, we ended up having a discussion, and we decided to sit down and try to recreate that discussion 
and because it ended up being really deep and it's not exhaustive by any means uh, it's not a debate but hopefully gives you the listener some food for thought as you're wrestling with how does salvation soteriology the study of salvation uh, how does that work so we're going to post some links to some different resources in the show notes so make sure to check those out and as always guys please share this episode with your family and friends leave us a positive review or just click five stars to help grow the channel and if you do get value out of our work out of these episodes uh, consider uh, supporting us financially even with a dollar a month Um, at one of the support links in the show notes description. It really does help to keep us on the air, make sure all the equipment is up and running, and we can keep bringing you these episodes week after week. Thanks for listening, guys. And with that, Don and I will jump into our discussion. Welcome back to the Days of Noah, everyone. I have my friend Don with me today. And many of you, if you've been listening for a while, you remember Luke and Don and myself uh, reviewing episodes of Blurry Creatures and having some good discussions on Genesis chapter 6 and things like that. And So Don and I have been getting together and doing some Bible study and uh, what um, Neil Cole in his book um, calls life transformation groups. And, uh, so that's been really great, Don, to have you. Thank you very much. Yeah. And, uh, I think it's been edifying for both of us. Well, we're not here to talk about that today. Actually, the reason we're recording is some months back, uh, I had posted something on Twitter now called X. Um, and Don replied with a couple question marks and was kind of like, what are you saying there? And when we got together, for one of our life transformation group um, sessions, he asked me about it. And there was actually a really rich discussion that came out of that. And we thought, you know what? We're going to record this uh, some point. And we were finally getting together to do that now in early December. And this will probably air sometime in January or February at the latest. But I think it'll be a good discussion. And what is it centering on? Well, a very controversial topic, honestly, right? It's It has to do with Reformed theology and the Bible. And now that is a very, um, it's a touchy subject to a lot of Christians. And a lot of people have very strong opinions, as I do, on that topic. Whether, And I'm not saying Arminian versus Calvinism, per se. Uh, because I've I've come to understand that really those two things are actually two branches from the same tree. They both start with the same presuppositions. Um, but this is more of a um, how do how do we understand the five points of Calvinism or Reformed theology? I'm going to use those terms interchangeably as we talk. How do we understand that in light of the Bible? And so I want to say from the outset, as Don is coming from a more Calvinistic um, understanding of Scripture, and I am not, that, you know, we're not opposed to one another, we're, we're friends, we're brothers in the Lord, and just like all of you listening, have your own opinions and thoughts and strong beliefs in many cases on those things, 
and that's great. I, if you have uh, placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, and yeah, if you've, if you've done that, you are my brother and sister in Christ. And this is not an issue that we need to uh, divide in any way over uh, so as as far as you know causing division or 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 getting upset about it so Don and I are not going to have a debate we're just going to have a discussion and try to by God's help recapture some of that rich discussion that ended up happening uh, spur of the moment when we got together so it all started from this there was a um, kind of an anti-Calvinist, I guess, that I I follow on Twitter. Uh, And he had posted this. I think Calvinism is incorrect, and I often talk about my disagreements. I've been accused of being anti-Calvinist. I've been accused of being too... On the other hand, I've been accused of being too soft on Calvinism. Consider that I'm soft even after reading all this, this Calvinist literature. And he has a picture of different books from Piper and MacArthur and others. Um, hearing them out so extensively, he says, is probably why I'm not as harsh as others, and probably why I'm constantly advocating Calvinists, and really everyone for that matter, read from those with whom they disagree. So that's good advice, I think, right? To to read others that you disagree with, and uh, I always get this messed up. Is it Aristotle that said the mark of an in- intelligent mind is to be able to entertain a thought that you do not yet agree with? So, um, so I, re- I, I responded in, in kind of some pointed words um, saying that I believe TULIP, and again, that's the acronym that, that Calvinists would use to describe that system of theology. So let's just define that real quick if listeners are not familiar with TULIP. T is for total depravity. Uh, The U is for uh, unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. I is irresistible grace. And the P is perseverance of the saints. So the idea is that um, we're so totally depraved that we can't come to Christ without God first doing a work to flip the switch to make us able. Um, And then the U, unconditional election, is that God picked only a pre-selected few from, you know, eternity past, before we were ever born, and picked only that select few to be saved. And no no more and no less, even. Okay? And... Now, again, there are many flavors and, and nuances to Reformed theology, Calvinist doctrine. Um, so I'm trying to steer as close to the middle in terms of what basically a five-point Calvinist would believe in. Um, what is what is accepted as that system. Um, so, again, the U of unconditional election is... It has nothing to do with us, but God, through almost a cosmic lottery before we were born, picked certain of us that he would make sure 100% we would be saved, and that everyone else he didn't pick, 
have no chance, no matter how much you would to you know how much you would preach the gospel to them, read the Bible to it wouldn't matter. Okay, if he didn't do that work first, then we're not going to respond. And with that comes the eye, the irresistible grace that um, that when when the timing is right for God to to open our eyes to the truth. So he picked us from eternity past, according to this system, that we would be saved. But at some point in our life, we, you know, the light bulb turns on, he zaps us, and his grace is irresistible, and we are absolutely going to come to faith uh, through that. Okay? So, now I have a lot of uh, issues with that, scripturally and, and philosophically, and and so what kind of, as I'm setting up this conversation, uh, I posted on Twitter that I believe Tulip to be evil, a distortion of God and his character and his word. Now, some of the things that I've looked into is says that um, this whole system of God predetermining salvation actually came from Gnosticism. It, it came from Augustine. In about the third century, I think he lived, because he was actually a Manichaean Gnostic for about ten years of his life, and so this was um, an idea of of fate and destiny that was a Gnostic belief that he brought into Christianity, and that's kind of the origin. Uh, some have pro- proposed there is a book um, based on his doctoral dissertation by Ken Wilson on the foundations of Augustinian Calvinism, if I'm getting the title right. So I will post a link to that book in the description, where his book is basically a summary of his, um, his dissertation. Um, so it's much, much easier to read than a, than a scholarly dissertation, but it, it hits all of the high points that, you know, the early church fathers, by and large, they did not have this understanding of how sal- salvation works, that Augustine was was one of the very first, if not the first, to popularize these views, and strong evidence, perhaps, that he got it from Gnosticism, not from Christianity. So, again, my position is that it is against what Scripture actually teaches, and actually the verses that seem to suggest the tulip theology are actually better understood um, with a different understanding. And then the verses that don't seem to line up to Calvinism that often are called um, attention or a perceived contradiction, they actually flow better in Scripture once we understand it differently. So anyway, that's the backdrop. I hope that wasn't too long-winded. So I made this statement, and I was saying, you know, the tulip uh, theology is from the pit of hell because it distorts God. Now, why does it distort God? Let me unpack that real briefly, and then we'll get down in here. I believe it distorts God's character in the Bible because God is 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 the most purest form of of everything, the highest form of every noble, wonderful attribute that you can think of. And the Bible literally says not he is loving, but he is the definition of love. And I can't imagine a more unloving thing than to unilaterally pick 
a minority to to be saved guaranteed in salvation and then the majority uh, the doctrine of reprobation right because you have to have that if you have election where only this group is saved you are saying by default that the other group and it is the majority of the world's population the billions who have ever lived and will live majority of those have literally no chance to go to heaven and I think, in my opinion, the Bible speaks to all of us having a chance. And if we reject God, well, that's on us. Because he's at least provided his son on the cross. He's given us his word the last, you know, couple thousand years. You know, even the Old Testament before that, they had the scriptures. He's given us all these things. We, The scripture says God is plainly known by the things around us. Even his creation speaks to who he is. So we're without excuse, the Bible says. So in my mind, election, that whole doctrine, and as, as it's understood in Reformed circles, is the complete antithesis of God being love. And it also gives the unbeliever the perfect excuse to say, well, of course I don't love you, God. Uh, I'm not going to believe in you because you decreed for me not to. And you you made it so I never would. So how are you holding me responsible in hell? And I think that's a good question. Again, we're trying to set this up so you guys understand the context of what we're going to talk about. So I had posted this, I think tulips from the pit of hell, because it turns God into a monster versus a loving God that when he says... I desire none to perish, but all to come to eternal life. I believe God actually means that. And it's not just lip service that, well, secretly, his secret will is he's only got this select few that he really cares about. Because everyone else, you know, yeah, he died on the cross, but sorry, I'm, I'm not going to let you use that that coupon to get out of hell free because of my blood. I'm only going to let it be used for the select few. So... Don, why don't you just jump in with with whatever you recall that you thought or the recoil maybe that you had for kind of how strongly I worded it or anything that I commented on so far. Well, one of the things that brought me to um, the X platform uh, now that was uh, Twitter is, um, you know, just seeing different opinions from different people um, all over different uh, topics and subjects. The... uh, the opinions that I've seen come out of the, the days of Noah have been very intriguing, I have to say, at the very least. And well, as, thank you. Yeah, and as uh, um, uh, Pete's uh, friend, um, you know, there's certain posts that I've had to send question marks to because I'm like, okay, that post felt like a slap in the face, but I know Pete doesn't mean it that way. What does <laughs> Pete mean? I can be a little strong sometimes with my opinions and maybe you guys don't see it as much on the show but it happens in real in regular life <laughs> right and and uh and but the cool part about our friendship is that um i can come back and say hey i don't agree with that or hey uh, what you know what do you mean and you know maybe try to explain that to me yeah for sure yeah so so that spurred the discussion right when i had posted that um, so do you recall, like, what was, what were some of the things that you thought, like, 
how, how does this fit what you're saying? It's from hell or, or, you know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but. Okay, so um, st- starting out, um, as you did the beginning or the entry to this uh, podcast, uh, my brain was swimming uh, because I'm not uh, I'm not a type that is, uh, you know, fully grounded in the ability to bring up facts at, at a quick moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not able to, uh, I, I would say I'm not very good at debating, even though we don't want to call this a debate, we want to call this a discussion. Right. However, when, a, when you're having uh, two different topics in the middle of a discussion, there will be a little bit of uh, back and forth debate. I don't think it's possible to not have, uh, have a discussion without a little bit of debate. For sure. Yeah. Um, but to the people out there that are, um, you know, full-blown uh, five-point Calvinists, my apologies to start with, uh, as in <laughs> I might not be the best, or actually I am not even close to um, somebody who's qualified to defend uh, Calvinism. Um, but as it comes down to it, as, a, as kind of a lay person who is a Christian, um, I do believe in, uh, in the tulip um, process, and um, I guess we could just kind of get into it at this point. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So again, we 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 don't want to set this up like, um, yeah, Don Don didn't represent his case, and 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 those that believe in tulip very well, and and I didn't like this discussion. So we're we're hoping not to make it lopsided that way, as as I personally, from my side, have done you know, many hours of looking into these things. Um, but it's more of Don going, Hey, I, not only do I, do I not agree with what you're saying, but can you explain where you're coming from? Is that kind of the, right. The flavor of what you, yeah. What started our discussion. Yeah. So with that in mind, we're just going to, you know, let the, let the recording roll here and, and hopefully capture, uh, some of that discussion that came out a few months ago that we didn't record. And, um, and for the benefit of everyone listening, just being able to wrestle with some of these deeper, um, salvific issues or soteriology as the study of salvation is called, um, wrestle with these issues, wherever you fall in line with this, you know, do your own due diligence, um, seek, uh, God's revelation in his word and stick to his word. So some of the things that I might bring up today are more philosophical, not scriptural. Others are more scriptural. I think you can approach it from both, but they do. I believe, I think Don would agree that whatever the right answer to any theological question, it should line up with both. I, I don't think you would have a sound philosophical argument that then is against the Bible. If it's sound, if it's logical, it probably lines up with the Bible in most cases. But we would also affirm that the highest authority is Scripture. So, with that starting point in mind, so, where to start? Well, why don't we start with, um, we talked a little bit about, about God's character and kind of the origin of Tulip, in my opinion, and from Ken Wilson's work. Um, w- one of the things that came up, Don, that we talked about was the, the tea in Tulip. 
was this total uh, depravity that from the fall of Adam, Adam and Eve, we inherited a nature so depraved that we would never desire God and we would be haters of God. Okay, so that's the doctrine upon which Tulip rests that because of that situation, the only way we could be saved is if God flipped that, as it's called, prevenient grace, flipped that switch on to enable us to be able to believe, to even want to believe. Some Calvinists will use an analogy like a lion. If you threw a, uh, a salad in front of it or a steak, you everyone knows which one it's going to go for and which one it's going to leave. And the so salad. The, of course, Don, yeah. yes. See, I just have to start off on the other end God of what you're going to say. Man, you know, it's a kinder, gentler world. And lions are eating salads these days, okay? So that analogy they're saying is that, see, you would never want that salad. You're a, you're a depraved sinner, and the stake of God's truth, or I'm sorry, I put it that wrong way, the, the salad of God's truth, I'm not making any vegetarian um, statements right now. I, I, I love to grill some meat on the barbecue, that you would never choose that. And, uh, and therefore, you know, you're spiritually dead. You would never choose it. Um, so one of the things that I did when I was discussing this with, uh, you know, a pastor from years ago who came from that, the Calvinist side is, and, and some of the, the kind of the, uh, Christian teachers on YouTube that I've followed over the years is looked into this idea of total depravity. And really as Don and we were kind of trying to recollect what we were talking about a few months ago this morning, the idea is really better understood as total inability. That is, we are unable under this doctrine if we are um, not given this special measure of grace that only the elect receive, that the curse of Adam is we are unable to respond positively to God to be saved. We, we wouldn't want it, and we would reject it over and over, if not for God turning on that light switch. And I don't so much have a problem with that idea in terms of God's character, although I don't think the Bible teaches that. I have a problem with that, that it's limited, okay, to only a select few, and that everyone else, it doesn't matter how much you pray for them, how much you preach to them, how much you share God's word, they will never be saved. That whole doctrine to me is abhorrent, reprehensible, from the pit of hell. I don't believe that's what scripture teaches. And again, as, as Don and I were preparing this morning just to try to uh, stir up what we were thinking about a few months ago when we talked, you know, I think it even disagrees with Paul when he says that the, the power of God is in his word by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe, that that his word is the power unto salvation. And I think the Calvinist might have to, I hope I'm not painting with too broad a brush for those listening, might have to uh, add on to Paul's scripture and say, well, it is if God flips the switch for you. I think, my opinion, is the power is in the word. Any Any thoughts on that? 
I uh, I think that the power is in the word. Also, I think that the word is also um, you know simultaneously Christ. Christ is the word. Um, I believe, even coming from my uh, point of view, um, when you're talking about the total depravity of a person, the the total depravity part, and I think we talked a little bit about this before, uh, dead in your sins. Right. Um, I'm one of the, I have the school of thought that dead means dead. Right. And, you know, if you're going to, uh, if you're going to go into a, a body viewing or a visitation or a wake and you go up to the casket, um, you can invite that person to lunch all day long and they're not coming. Exactly. And so that's the, the way that I look at dead, uh, spiritually dead is just plain gone and dead, unable to respond. And um, wherever that falls, um, I've, I've always looked at God as having, God can have things both ways in a way. Mm. Um, and I, I know that uh, that's that logic will immediately cause people to uh, probably press pause on this and get up and say, well, who is this Don guy? So the, bo- the both and rather than either, either or when it seems to contradict? Y- yes, I, I think that God uh, can have things both ways because, um, and, it, and it goes way above our logic and it goes into infinite God. And it brings up this idea. So we'll talk about uh, deadness, spiritual deadness and how scripture uses that and see if it kind of lines up with what you're saying. And, and the other thing that you mentioned there stirs another thought that there is this idea of, well, it's God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher. There is an appeal to mystery, I think. Now, in my opinion, I think at some level this is kind of a punt uh, to say there's just some things that we don't understand. Uh, I remember one pastor that I, I heard at a, our, our old church that uh, brought to light this word antimony or antimony. I don't know how it's pronounced. Actually, I looked it up today to try to figure it out, figure out how to pronounce it. And there's actually the same word is used for something to do with like metallurgy, and then and then the definition spelled the same. And then spell and then uh, the definition that I'm talking about, which is a perceived contradiction something that looks like two things are opposed but they're actually not it's a, it's a paradox right it, it it works it just seems on the surface uh to contradict now i think there's things where if you hold up the tulip system to certain verses yeah i get i get what you're saying i think you're talking about things that are above our pay grade we don't understand or comprehend but then i think there's things where it's just like a clear contradiction that god can't have it both ways and maybe if i could just give this example food for thought not trying to necessarily change your mind but if god believes that he or let me let me rephrase that if god wants truly wants everyone to come to faith and that he desires none to perish. And if, John 3.16, anyone who uh, believes in Jesus Christ can be saved, I don't think that squares with the idea that he has a pre-select few. 
he would be disingenuous, I think, to do that. And I also think in his word, he's he's created uh, a system in and in the way the world works, in the way reality works. That's logical. It's ordered, right? We would agree that God is a God of order. And I think logic is one of those things. Um, and so... I don't know that that's a perceived contradiction. I think that would be an outright contradiction. Now, a lot of these so-called tensions I've heard pastors use, well, it's a tension. We just don't understand it. Like, here's an example. Pastors will bring up, well, how is Jesus fully God and fully man? Or they'll bring up, well, how is Jesus born of a virgin? Yeah, we believe it, but think about it. A virgin, how how does that work? Because that's not how procreation works. So they go, see, that's a tension. Well, I hold the same thing, that yes, God wants all to be saved, but, oh, he's passing over a bunch of people so as not to allow them to be saved. That would be a tension, they would say. You know, in my opinion, I just think those are different categories. I think that the idea of being God and man at the same time is a tough one but they're not they're not contradictory here's how that work would work in my head don if i said to you you're a father right right you're also a son of your parents correct okay so you're two things at the same time Mm -hmm. now that's a lot easier for our minds to comprehend than jesus being a hundred percent god and a hundred percent man it might, be, it might be easier for us to understand Jesus as 50% God and 50% man. That would, that would add up to 100. We would, we would go, that makes more sense, even though we know biblically that's, that's not what it teaches. But it would make more sense if it was 50-50. Okay, but what if I said to you, Don, uh, you're a father and you're also not a father? I, I, can, um, I can come back to that pretty quickly. Okay. Um, if I'm, I can be a father to my daughters, raise them, love them, care for them, bring them up. Yes. I can also be a uh, biological father and not care. That's true. So now there's different senses. So let's pinpoint that. Maybe it, maybe I'll rephrase, rephrase my question. So if I said to you, you are a biological father, correct? If I then in the next breath said, Don, you are, you are also not a biological father to anyone. Now you're, you're kind of stuck. You don't get to have the both and there. Would you agree? Let me, uh, let me ponder for just you, you two, hope, let me just ponder yes. that for just two seconds. Cause I don't want to go down in flames this That's early. Okay. But, um, I'm thinking that. Uh, you're correct, I cannot be a biological father and not be a biological father at the same time. Yes. Now, there's different senses that you brought up, the sense of being a father where you're actually contributing to your children's lives versus, yeah, you fathered someone, but you're kind of a deadbeat, you're not around. Big difference. But we're not, yeah, I'm trying to avoid that for sake of clarification. Another way to put it would be... um, if, 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 for example, I was currently employed, employed at um, the University of Wisconsin educational system, 
If I was an employee of them currently on their staff, if you looked me up, you could I could show you my pay stubs. But then on, on the very same day that I said, yes, I'm an employee, I also said I've never worked for them. So those two things you would agree, they're mutually exclusive. You, you, can't, you can't say I am an employee of this specific company and then also say I've never worked for them. Yes, you can. You, let's say you're an employee of uh, UW. Um, okay. You show up every day. Okay. You go to your desk and you do nothing. You can actually say, oh, I've never worked. Okay. And Don's cornering me. All right. I need to be more specific. Good one. But the idea is we have to be very precise with these definitions. And yeah, you could you could think of work in a certain sense. Yeah, you show up, but you don't work. Yeah, I'm trying to be as concrete as I can just think of these analogies off the top of my head. But the idea of, you know, another one would be, um, you know, you, at some point in the past, you were born, but you were also never born. You know, things like that. Things that are just like, yeah, you can't be both at once. You are a brother to some, but you're a sister to the same. You know, that, like things like that. So that's where my head says, you know what? If God truly does desire, he truly is saying, you know, like like Jesus, how long have I wanted to gather you like, oh, Israel, like a, a hen with its chicks? But you were unwilling you know, it just doesn't make sense that Jesus would lament over Israel's hardness of heart if he and his father are the ones that decreed them to be hard in their heart. So, Don, why, why don't I ask you this as as someone that, and again, I'm not, you said yourself you're not the, the perfect representation of all things TULIP and Reformed theology, and I'm not trying to, you know, slam you as if you need to be. But from your perspective, understanding that under TULIP, there necessarily, because of unconditional election, there has to be by default unconditional reprobation. Those that are predetermined to hell with zero chance of salvation. You you would agree that the two have to work together. I, w- I would agree. Okay. With that in mind, and I think the majority of Calvinists and Reformed theology uh, adherence would affirm that. There's not much getting around that. If there's this pre-select few of saved or, or will be saved for sure at some point in their life and no more, none can be added to it, none taken away, thereby definition there has to be the, all the rest of humanity that is not making it into heaven and therefore it's going to hell. Um. When you think about that, and maybe you don't because it's, I mean, John Piper admitted himself when he accepted that for the first time in his life, whenever that was, he said he wept for three days straight. That it was so, to think that maybe one of, I don't know how many children he has, to think that one child God picked, another didn't. And there's absolutely nothing that John as a father could do about it. So what? Maybe on this, putting you on the spot, maybe you haven't thought about it because it is an awful thought. What do you do with that in light of God's character? 
That's a very that's a very good uh, uh, good question. Um, and you've found uh, you've actually poked into one of my weak areas. I mean, when you talk about children, uh. um, if I was if I was told outright that one of my daughters is going to heaven and one of my daughters is going to hell, um, that would I would be weeping for a lot more than three days. Yeah. I wouldn't know how to handle that. Um, it would probably spark me to shake my fist at God. It would spark anger. It would spark all these emotions. Now let me let me pick up with what you just said, because there have been no few amount of people and a few famous ones. I think of the former singer of Cademan's Call, I believe who basically said as much. He's like, oh, look at Romans 9. You know, God hardens who he hardens. And, say, you know, he hates Esau and loves Jacob. And that's not what Romans 9 is about, uh, I believe. But these are the kinds of things that are used to to justify that. But, but you said it. You would, to accept that doctrine, like even of, of your own children, is reprehensible. So you would shake your fist at God and go, I wouldn't want to believe in a God like that. And unfortunately, and this is why this issue is so important, is there are so many people who either walked away from Christianity. Now, I don't want to get into the, you know, they were never saved to begin with, you know, discussion, you know, um, once saved, always saved. Oh, they were a false convert. Maybe so. But let's just say, they further hardened their hearts towards God when they came to this tulip understanding of the Bible, of how God works. Because it is, it makes him a monster. And I don't think he is. I think he's the most loving. And Don, you would agree. The, God is the most loving, gracious being ever. He also... Uh this maybe breaches into uh, his glory a little bit, and uh, as far as well, punishment as, of as yes, yes, and this is another. If I can pick up with that, yes. so yes, so I I wouldn't be doing Calvinist justice as as Don has brought up. These are some good things that they do talk about. They're like, well, we all deserve death, therefore it's only by God's grace that He saved any. So that's one way they kind of get around it or at least explain it um also there's the doctrine of 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 well god shows his uh as vessels of wrath the scripture talks about displaying his glory in that way sure um the way i would did i accurately yes kind of sum those up okay the way i would push back against those is I think God's glory is better represented and biblically in the biblical story, the thematic representation of God's glory, it's much better represented in terms of God's loving sacrifice in laying himself down for us. I think that's how he displays his glory. He doesn't want to punish but he has that punishment there because part of his attribute is holiness, right? That there has to be some consequence. And then if we look at, well, how did he prefer to, to uh, display his wrath? 
for humanity's sake at least, okay, not to speak nothing of the angels and demons and so on, through the cross. If God had his way while keeping our free will intact, he would have had every one of us come to faith, thereby the only wrath that all humanity for all time would ever feel in eternity was already placed on Christ, right? Unfortunately, our free will dictates that some of us don't choose that. We reject God. So again, is God a monster under this system? If if he is predetermining some to never have the opportunity to come to the end of themselves and say, God, I am an undone, I am undone, I am a sinner, I am wretched, save me, I throw myself at your mercy. I think that opportunity is available for all. You know, you even look at the prodigal son, he came to his senses, he said, you know, maybe my dad will take me back as a servant, a hired hand. But what does the father do? He He's, number one, he's looking out for his son. He sees him a long ways off. To me, that hints at he's hoping for his son to come back. Number two, he, he runs, he picks up his, his robe or whatever and runs, which is an undignified thing. He didn't care about his pride. Ran out to him and lavishes his love on him. That is a picture of God's desire for all of us to be saved. So I just it doesn't square well with me. And I, I agree with you, Don. I think it would cause you to shake your fist at God and say, what an awful God you are. Or you're kind of forced to appeal to mystery. Or, well, it's he's showing his glory through wrath. Yeah, the, the uh it it's it's a hard it's a hard pill. The uh um and I would go back to um I love Jacob, I hated Esau. And I would also go back to um you know what what does the clay, what can the clay pot say to the clay maker? You know, what have you done? Right. Um there just seems to be uh to me a lot of um wording in the Bible, wording in Scripture that tends to make me lean towards election, uh, predestination. And the reason being is um, there's been two ways that I've kind of thought to look at it. And, um, you know, as I'm a growing Christian and still learning, um, you know, I try to keep every door open except for the certain doors of doctrine that, you know, you stand on as solid. There is, um, does God look into a proverbial crystal ball and say, oh, Don's going to believe on this day? All right, so he's elect. And yeah, that's more the Arminian side, I okay, believe. Okay, that's the Arminian side? Yeah. Okay. Looks through the corridors of time, and, and from what I've heard, most Reformed theology adherents reject that. That's not how it was done, but go okay. ahead. And then, uh, and and I, I, I've, I've thought that before, um, but I've also thought using, and, and I have to just kind of, and I guess this would be uh, jumping into philosophical uh, viewpoints based on what 
I think or feel. Right. So this is not, I'm not reading scripture right now. This is how I've learned things. Yeah. Is that when I, um, before I was saved, um, and I know that, I know you're going to go right there with a point before I was saved, because uh, are we saved from the minute we're born if we're elect, or are we not saved for a while? It's and a tricky saved? one, yeah. but keep going. Yep. Um, the way that I'm looking at this is how I was saved. And again, you know, to, to talking to uh, Christians out there, there's this moment of enlightenment. There's this moment of, hey, I'm... I'm in the middle of sin. I'm doing something wrong here. And maybe that's the beginning. Maybe that's just the spirit starting to uh, to convict somebody of something. Um, but when I was saved, um, I was saved kicking and screaming, just like Lot was um, leaving Sodom. He was pulled out by God. He was literally pulled out by God. And, um, you know... That's that's one of the one of the parables of Christ is that when you're plowing the you know if you put your hand to the plow then if you look back you know you're not worthy of the kingdom and and obviously yeah. Lot's Lot's wife just what she wasn't being pulled like Lot was Lot was facing forward and going the way he should according to God but she was looking back and turned into a pillar of salt and so. Um, I guess what I'm getting at there is I didn't want to be saved. Right. When, yeah, and it, it's not that I it's not that I didn't want to go to heaven someday. I'm not saying that. Yes. Um, but it's like the way that I looked at it was, hey, you know, life's life. You know, let's live and enjoy and do whatever we want. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, comes this Savior, yeah. and, and comes into my life. And that's that's where so I fall into that I, election. I've heard you talk about that before. Thank you for bringing that up about your story. And so, yeah, so what you're saying is that felt to you like God was doing, and he was. I would agree with that even from a non-Calvinist side. But it feels like getting elected or, or a switch. A switch that was flipped and then you felt the conflict of your flesh and body going right i don't want this so it felt like pulling along i i can understand that um i guess maybe the different well i don't know i don't want to i'm could, not trying to invalidate you know, it but no no go ahead that's what this is about but i i guess i would say like well we're almost always going to have that conflict because Especially if we're at a point of decision for whatever reason, we know what life was like before, or like we kind we kind of have a sense, even if we don't understand, you know, maybe all the Ten Commandments or what God is asking, we kind of have a sense that our life needs to change and some things have to change that maybe we don't want to. So I feel like that conflict would be there either way. Um. But no, I understand why that makes sense, that that feels like God doing something that you didn't want. But I also think there's a part of you that, whether it was intellectually or spiritually, there was an understanding somehow, right, that if this is true, I'm going to follow you because if I don't, these are the consequences. If I do, these are the blessings. Right, and and um, the, the way that I... 
uh, came to know Christ was through the, uh, um, you know, maybe some of your listeners have never even heard of these, but the Left Behind books. Oh, sure. I read those and uh, got, you know, partway through the second book, and I said, I'm not saved. Wow. And, um, you know, so at that point, um, that's when I really started looking. Prior to me even picking up those books, um, I was in... I was living in a in a very sinful life mm. and got yanked right out of it. Um, you know, it initially started with, I need to kind of look into this God thing. Yeah. Now, I've always thought, quote, unquote, kind of coming from me, Jesus has my back. I'm good. You know, that's how I felt my whole life because when I was a kid, my mom... Uh, you know, said you just have to believe in Jesus, and that's it. It's simple as falling easy, off a log. Easy, easy belie- believism. Easy believism. That's all you got to do. Bam. Jesus, Jesus is a friend to everybody. Right. And so, after I got saved or came to knowledge of my election, however you want to put it, <laughs> um, you know, at at that point, I knew that it wasn't just a you know Jesus is the the guy upstairs, mm-hmm. you know, and thumbs up. It was. Oh man, you know I. He's also the king with all the power and authority. Yes, and and, and the I, judge. Exactly, exactly. You know I don't. I'm 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 sure I'm quoting somebody else that coined this this phrase, but they said, uh, and I've quoted it many times over the years. Jesus is like the U.S. Marines or a U.S. Marine. He is your best friend on the battlefield, but your worst enemy. If he's your enemy, he's the worst enemy. You you better have him as your friend. Right. And, and um, you know, God even says in Joshua when, you know, Joshua says, are you on my side or on? The, yes. You know, whose side are you on? He's like, I'm on nobody's side. He's on his side. Yep. Completely. Gosh. Uh, and I, him, him being on his side completely tends to show me that he can do anything he wants to do including election. I I agree with you, and it's some of the themes we've talked about on other shows that I believe that God has limited himself to not do what election says. He, he says, look, I'm going to create mankind in my image. I'm going to, you know, allow for sin to happen by free will. I'm not going to make robots. Because that is the way I set it up, I'm keeping to my rules. I do not change. Therefore, if some go to hell, it's on them. If some go to heaven, they've received my gift. So you're right. I think God is able, he's able to do all things, but he doesn't allow himself to do all things because he set up the world a certain way. It's kind of like if, if I invented the game of football, you know, a hundred and some whatever years ago that it was invented. And I said, okay, these are the, you know, 50 rules of football. God set up the 50 rules of of reality, right? right? Right. And because he's God and he doesn't change, he doesn't get to make amendments to those. Does that make sense? So he has to stick with it. So once he decided to give us free will to to the whole system of, you know, blood blood atonement and the perfect sacrifice of Christ, that whole system that he said, this is how I'm going to set up reality for my purposes, then that's, he's locked into that system. Was that, would that be fair? 
It, that would be fair because otherwise he would be uh, contradicting. He would. But one other thing is that you might be overlooking is um, miracles, that he would come in and yeah. change those rules. I I agree, like a, like a law of physics or something like that, that he might... Well, like, you know, like, I think even deeper than a law of physics, um, you know, being able to raise the dead. Oh, of course. You know, of course. Now, but, but again, even that uh, doesn't contradict something that he set up. For example, if he said the normal way that things are going to work is, you know, you throw a rock up, it falls, if you die you stay dead right if he predetermined again with those you know 50,000 rules that there would be certain exceptions but only when he decides and so on and so forth yes and i guess maybe that's what your point is 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 those exceptions to the rules that's that's worthy of dis- that's worthy of thought i think that's a good point don let's let's circle back a, real quick before we wrap up here. I don't want to get too long-winded. You know, you brought up election and predestination. Those are words that are in Scripture. There's no getting around it. Um, I just think they're misunderstood and they're defined improperly under Calvinism. That election is always to Israel and it is always to um, a calling, a, a call to service that it doesn't have to do with salvation. And same with predestination, like verses in uh, Ephesians, that those he foreknew, he predestined, that they should be. It's it's those that are, the once you're saved, you are predestined to be, um, you know, conformed to the image of his son, right? So it's like, if you get on the bus going to the Brewer game in Milwaukee, Everyone that gets on that bus is predestined to go to the ball game. Anyone can get on the bus, but once you're on the bus, that's the destination of the bus. So I think that's how predestination is 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 talking about. Um, why don't we wrap up with this um, just to unpack a little bit of? And again, this is by no means an exhaustive discussion on this topic at all and i hope that we're giving it a fair representation at least from our viewpoints as a conversation not as a debate or who has better points but let's just look at some verses since we haven't looked at a whole lot of scripture yet on how the bible uses the word dead in terms of a figurative sense now let me start with um Genesis, Adam and Eve, God said that if you eat of this tree that's forbidden, on that day you will surely die. Now, we know from the biblical account in Genesis that Adam and Eve did not drop over physically. All right. And God said you will surely die on that day. Well, we know that they didn't drop over dead because later on, you know, they have children, things like that. Their life went on. So, we are left with only one conclusion that God did not mean they would bodily die. Now, I believe, yeah, uh, I believe though that He did mean bodily die because they will eventually bodily die at that point. True. However, He did, He said on this day. On this, okay, okay. But you're you're right. Yeah. Uh, death was set in motion, is what you're saying. Okay, so we know that it, they didn't die physically. Now, I believe the Bible teaches that we are body, soul, and spirit. With that idea in mind. 
their soul being our personality, our mind, our will, our emotions. That's often, I think, how the soul is defined. It's what makes us us. You know, what makes you, Don, different than me. Other than us physically, that's what makes you different. Um, did their soul die? Did Adam cease to be Adam with his personality, whatever that was? Did Eve cease to be Eve with the way her mind thought and, you know, what interests she had in life? You know, gardening or so. <laughs> Who knows what Eve was into, right? No, I don't. I, that wouldn't make sense either. Well, I, th I think that they were all about God before they ate the fruit. And so... Yeah, I think hobbies and things came after the fact. Sure, but or or, or in, but they maybe would still, other interests, but, other interests. Yes, but they would still have had a, a mind, emotions, right? Right. That still would have been there. So okay, so we know we can say safely that their soul didn't die. So I think it's pretty safe to say that all we can agree that the Bible teaches that some other death happened. Most would affirm that to be a spiritual death. Now, we talk about, you know, can a dead person respond to the gospel? Okay, that's the big question, right? The whole reason why God has to do a special work of grace, it's called prevenient grace. It's flipping on that switch so that when we're presented at the right time of our life, however it works, we will respond. We are able to respond. And irresistible grace says we can do no other but respond positively to the gospel. So with the understanding that in the Garden of Eden, humanity still had two things intact. Now, they might have been corrupted. That would be fair to say. But the body and the soul were still intact. The spirit was made dead. And in at least in the sense of being connected to God, it was dead. So maybe the spirit was still there, but dead in the sense that there's no lifeblood of God through it, right? Okay. So now fast forward to what, and again, I'm just giving my opinion of Scripture here. Fast forward to what Paul says. If you confess with your mouth, body, and believe in your heart, soul, you will be saved, spirit. So, the way I answer the Calvinists when they say, yes, but we inherited spiritual deadness, I say, that's fine. We still have a thinking mind and a will and emotions and a body that can speak. And the Bible says, Paul says, if we do that, if in our heart, our will and our emotions say, I believe, and we actually confess it, you know, we, out, of, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, the Bible says. That's how faith is connected to the power. So God gets all the glory for doing the saving. We don't get credit for the faith. But those two things are still intact. So that's where I feel like, yes, I can affirm spiritual deadness, but I can also affirm that God doesn't have to do a special work. Not that he doesn't work. He, he draws all of us to himself, the Bible says. He is at work. But he doesn't have to do a special work that only the elect get. If anything, he does that special work for everyone. Maybe not in the same amounts. I think if you grew up in a Christian home, you had a better 
position to come to faith than someone who grew up in a pagan tribe somewhere, right? Yeah, I would say so. That's fair, right? But I think God can speak to us in a variety of ways. We all have an opportunity to come to salvation. I think we would agree. All right, so let's wrap up with this. We're just going to look at a few verses on how the Bible uses deadness. So like you said, you're like, you know, I think dead means dead and God has to do the awakening. So let's, we talked about Adam and Eve in Genesis. Let's look at Revelation to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, 1 to 5. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Why say to someone, and this is Jesus, presumably, right, in Revelation, talking to this church, why tell them to wake up if they're dead? If they can't respond, if God has to do a special work, why even exhort them to wake up? It's the same conundrum we're left with if God is the one hardening the Jews in Jesus' day. Why in the world would Jesus lament that their hardness of heart meant that, that, he, that God couldn't gather them up like a hen with his chicks? They were unwilling, Jesus says. So we, we have the same problem there. But if it is their free will of being spiritually dead, then the exhortation makes sense, wouldn't it? That, hey, wake up, man. You know, get yourself together here. Is the wake-up called the uh, the miracle there? If God says wake up? Oh, as in a command of being woken up. Well, let's look at the context. That's a good question. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead, period. Wake up, comma, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. So, in the context of that sentence, it wouldn't make sense for him to command them to wake up as in him causing it, mm -hmm. which is, I think, what you're saying, but more of, hey, wake up, and then it says, and strengthen what remains and is about to die. He's telling them to be strengthened, not presto changeo, I'm strengthening you, I'm waking. Is that fair? It, yeah, it makes sense. Okay. But that's a good question. Good, good question there. Um... So again, we don't see the word dead being used as inability. Okay. I can affirm total depravity, absolutely. We, we have a sinful nature or a sin bent, a moral weakness at the very least. Um, but, so you'd be a one-point Calvinist then? Oh, yes, but I wouldn't affirm it. I wouldn't even be a one if what they mean is the inability to respond to the gospel, and that's what... That's really what they mean, that we lost that ability at the fall. But I, as I was trying to make the point, we still have a body and soul intact, and Paul says that's all we need. Well, the the body and soul are, um, you know, like just starting with the body, the flesh is completely corrupted. And does something that's completely corrupted do anything good? And I would say no. I would say no. Um when the spirit is awakened inside you, I think you were saying that um, our our intellect and our soul respond in faith, if I'm getting this right, in faith to the gospel, and then the spirit comes to life. 
I I almost feel like that is me saying, well, God, I checked box A and box B, and now you owe me salvation. Not in the sense of earning it, but in the sense I think you are correct, as as simple as you made it sound, and I understand the point. Yeah, yeah. I think he did make it that way. That I think that's the way he set it up. It, 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 listen, if you meet me in the condition of a humble heart of belief, receive it like a little child. Absolutely, I am. I will. A broken and contrite heart, I will not despise. He will absolutely come to you and say, "Yes, I am your savior." He's not going to reject any one of us. I, I think that's true. Yeah, as as crass as maybe you made it sound to make your point. Yeah, I think so. And but we don't get credit for it. He does all the saving, but I think he made the condition that, "Yep, hey, you come to me with that humility and that belief." Absolutely. Um. Let's move on. Luke fifteen seventeen to 24. Prodigal son. Uh, let me skip ahead. Uh, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So there's that humility, right? He's throwing him out, the mercy of the Father. Now it's up to the Father's sovereignty to do what he wills. But one okay. thing is that he, okay. re- he rehearsed that before he came up to his father. If if you look at the context of that whole parable, but um, have you ever rehearsed something before you're going to talk with somebody? Like, all right, I'm going to make my point you know, here. I'm going to I'm going to show him I'm how humble I am. I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, but, but I'm, I think, yeah. But I think in the case of this parable, I think I think it's told in such a way where we get a glimpse to the inner dialogue of the son before he heads back. So whether he rehearses it to get it right, <laughs> or or we're simply given a glimpse to his thoughts. Right, mm-hmm. in a, in a sort of narration, like telling a story, the audience knows what the protagonist is thinking. I, Understood. That's the way I would say. Yeah. It. All right, but let me keep going because okay. it get, gets to the to the word dead again. Sure. Okay. Uh, I have sinned against heaven before you, and this is and and I'm quoting where he's actually saying it, not the rehearsing part. Uh, so he's saying this literally to his father. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So again, there's that humility. And again, the father is totally sovereign to decide to dismiss him or not. But this is a glimpse into the heart of God. And again, I just want to make this clear. Under Calvinism, God doesn't respond this way. If someone, now you might say, Oh, and he would never throw himself at the mercy because he would just be a hater of God. Well, maybe. But I'm saying that the distinction here is he is throwing himself at at the mercy of God. And under Calvinism, only those that, even if they wanted to, now I understand the point, they wouldn't want to come to God. Even if they wanted to, uh, God would reject him. Sorry, I didn't choose you before the foundation of the earth. Anyway, let me keep going. But the father said to his servants, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So there's the use of that word deadness in not a literal sense. If he was made alive again or is alive again, 
it's in a different sense. So was there ever a point in the prodigal's life where he couldn't have come back to the father? Looking back uh, on the whole story, the answer would have to be no. No. So we know he came to his senses. We don't know how long he was living in sin and, and before he realized his depravity. Let's say it went on 20, long, 20 more years. He was able to make his money last or whatever and then came to his senses. Would the father have received him? I think we would say probably yes because that was the father's nature. So there's nothing about inability to respond that happened. And there, there's also nothing about compelling the son, like the father sent a letter, you know, compelling the son to come back. It was the son coming to this, his own corrupted soul and body, coming to his senses and going, this stinks. Uh, I had it great under my father's household. I want back in. Um all right, James 1, 13 to 15. Uh, then desire, when it is key, conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. In this passage, did death precede one sin, or did sin lead to death? Uh, in Calvinism, I would say, doesn't death come first when we're born? So we're basically born uh, dead. Which I think is true because of the original sin. Now, that's a that's a tricky one, and I guess we'll have to table that one. I, I'm on the fence on that. I think we do have a sin nature, but I don't think we inherited Adam's guilt. But that's just my opinion. Um, but again, nothing about inability. Um, but, but rather, the deadness comes as a result of the sin. Um, Romans 7, 7 to 12... Um, what shall we say then that the law is sin by no means? All right, let me jump ahead for apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So it didn't literally kill him, but it showed him that he was spiritually dead, that he was up against the wall, the charges were filed against him, and he was guilty. But again, that deadness doesn't mean inability. Did um, And you're talking about Paul. Uh, yeah. So when Paul got saved, he he was saved whether he liked it or not, because he was, he was not en route to his uh, father as a prodigal. He was en route to destroy people from the church. And so when God yanked him out of his reality, it it almost seems like I don't see I don't see a lot of where Paul had much of a choice than to become mm. or Saul at the time didn't have much of a choice to become Paul. That that's just how it looks to me. However yeah, yeah. Beca- because he knew what he was going to become the victim of the persecution then and he knew that. Hmm but anyway, I that's I digress a little. That's that's I mean, of all things that God went out of His way to do something, the Damascus Road, you know, blinding him, light in the sky, voice from heaven, whatever. That's that's a pretty good one. Now, now it doesn't it doesn't prove it doesn't negate what you said. Yeah, and it doesn't yeah. and it doesn't prove right that Paul was elect from before the foundation of the earth. It just means that that God 
He definitely intervened to get Paul's attention. I don't know. I, I've come to believe that God 100% keeps our free will intact, but he is so wise and smart and powerful that he can orchestrate things. Like I was just talking to you about Jonathan Kahn's newest book, The Josiah Manifesto, yes. and how something occurred while the president was speaking at the very same time to the second. It was like 5.04 p.m. and 33 seconds. What the president said lined up with an ancient, you know, Israelite holy day proclamation blowing of the shofars or something like that. You'll have to read the book to, to hear the story. Could not have done this any other way than God doing it. And yet, God did it through the free will of all the speaker, all the speakers that were speaking before the president, and then all the delays, or you right? All these things that had to happen, so those two separate events lined up on the exact second. Now, if he can do that and not mess with our free will, see, because he can put distractions in front of us. He can give us a thought and and make our sentence go five seconds longer that didn't mess with our free will it's simply thoughts coming in and now we act on them in our free will that's how amazing god is so anyway that's how i look at like paul's damascus road he still had the choice but god brought him to that place where it's like come on you're you're persecuting me um Colossians 2, 11 to 14, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead and you who were dead in your trespasses and this uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. So there's that deadness in our sins, which you're talking about. Um, but again, it's there's nothing in that context, if you guys, I know I'm breezing through it, but if you look at the context, there's nothing there that says that our deadness uh, means inability. Now, you might look at it and say, yeah, but God made him alive. See? Election. Well, we were just talking about that this morning, looking at First Peter, where it says God made... I forget the context. God made him made us alive through faith or something like that. God made us alive through the uh, sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience to yes. Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood. Well done, well quoted. So, I think that can be true either way. I don't think that necessitates Calvinism because we can still give God one hundred percent of the credit for the salvation. We are simply accessing it through faith, which is not a work. So the analogy I like to give is if I fell in a 50-foot hole and I fell down there with a 10-foot rope in my pocket, isn't going to do me any good. Don comes along and throws me a 50-foot rope, so he's able to hang on. I'm able to grab hold. When I get to the top and thank Don, do I go, boy, I was smart to grab that rope. I saved myself. No, I don't get to do that. I was at the mercy of whoever was up there with the tools and the strength to get the job done. I was at the mercy of whoever was up there ready to help me. And that's how I think 
salvation, grace through faith works is we don't get credit. I don't get credit. You know, no one's going to write a story. Oh, man saved from 50 foot hole. He was so smart to grab that rope. No one would ever write a headline or a story like that. That The world would go, what? No, the hero gets the credit and Jesus is the hero. So that's how I see faith and works in that, in that vein. All right, well, there's a few more verses, but why don't we wrap up with some final thoughts here. Um, again, this is not exhaustive, but hopefully giving people some food for thought. And it's spurred because of my impulsive, uh, harsh tweet, and Don had some good questions. I guess what I would say is, um, you know, to all the people out there who are a lot more educated in uh, in TULIP and more educated in uh, uh, five-point Calvinism, my apologies. Uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a debater, and I'm not a uh, a person who's uh, got it all figured out. Um, the only thing that I've gone with is um, as total depravity um, really sunk into my heart as God was saving me, and and I just uh, I just uh, I didn't want to be saved. I didn't want to go into any type of a you know weird Christian life, and then all of a sudden, bam! I got yanked into it, mm. and so. To me, I was dead at the bottom of the 50-foot hole, and um, I had no rope in my pocket, and the person came down and picked me up and got me. Yeah. Uh, the, the, let's make the firefighter the hero. I'm sure, <laughs> the, I'm sure the captain will like that. There we go. Luke will like that. Yep. Um, but the firefighter came down the, down the ladder and picked me up and threw me over his shoulder and brought me up, and that's... Uh, that's the way that I look at it. Right. I also look at it as I, I enjoy being down in the bottom of the hole. I think we all have that. I, I liked it. We all have that. And honestly, and again, I don't think, I think there is, is, I think there is one uh, proper way to understand soteriology and scripture. But I will say this, if, if the way that God decided to work was that we were completely unable to respond that actually at the fall of mankind in the garden we did lose the ability to respond i wouldn't have a problem with that i don't think the bible teaches that but i wouldn't have a problem with god's character being maligned under those circumstances if he provided that rope to everyone where uh, the rub again is that he's picking some for damnation. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that squares with Scripture. I don't think that squares with the definition of what election and predestination actually mean. And there's way too much time that would be needed to go through those verses, but there's some good teaching out there on it. But I wouldn't have a problem with that in terms of God's character because at least he would be... Um equally loving and he wouldn't he wouldn't be disingenuous when he says i desire that all should come to salvation um i i take him at his word when he says that that it is open to all now if he's dragging us kicking and screaming okay let's go with that let's say that for the sake of argument that that's what god does for every believer well then i would have to affirm that he doesn't neglect to do that with anyone 
but it's our free will that rejects it. That when he extends his hand in salvation, it truly is open to all. And I think that glorifies him more. Like you said earlier, wow, if that was the God that did that, I would want to shake my fist that, you know, he picked one of my children and not the other. That would be a hard pill to swallow. People have literally left Christianity over it. Again, were they truly saved or not, we don't know. Um, but yeah, wrestle with these things, guys, because um, we need to be prepared, as Peter, we read in First Peter, prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. When we preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ's salvation through faith, that everyone as a sinner needs to come to saving faith. And if we don't, we've rejected the only way to eternal life. When we present that gospel, we need to do it with a pure heart that says, yes, everyone that I'm talking to, whether it's one person or a hundred, has that opportunity. And... I don't think the Calvinists can say that. I think they would like to believe that they genuinely mean it, and I'm sure they do. But if they thought about it logically, that the reality is, is that out of 100 people, maybe God only picked 20 of those to be elect. And that's why in my tweet, I don't know if it was that tweet, Don, or another one, that I've said that I think it's a false gospel. I think it's another gospel that's warned about in Galatians. It's not the gospel of Christ because the gospel of Christ says anyone can come to believe and I've provided a way of salvation. And Versus Calvinism that says, yeah, I provided a way of salvation, but I've limited it to these few. So what ends up happening is the gospel becomes bad news for most of all humanity. And to me that's another gospel. If it's bad news for most of you, you might you might preach the word faithfully and you know if you're a street preacher or just with your friends at the dinner table or whatever. You might faithfully read scripture and you might believe that they need to and that they can be saved. But if you truly believe in election, you're really saying Honestly, God might have chosen for reprobation, and I might be wasting my breath. And it might be bad news to him that you're done for. And God actually created you to have eternal suffering and torment. That's not what I believe the God of the Bible teaches. But I think it's important to wrestle with these things. And I thank you, Don, for chatting with me, even though you didn't prepare and it's not a debate and we're not trying to make it sound like we know all the answers or just because I'm doing most of the talking I've got I've got it figured out um, and I hope the listeners understand that too that I don't hold anyone in contempt if they believe uh, the tulip system um, I just think it is a an incomplete way of understanding the Bible. And, and there are those out there that you can find that um, believed that system and then started to see some of the holes in it, they said, and, and, and understood Scripture in a different way. 
So I just encourage everyone to prayerfully do your own due diligence in the Word of God, understanding that um, every Word of God is true, and wrestle with those things that they might feel like contradictions, but they're not. And then the other ones that are outright contradictions. Or appear to be. Or appear to be. Those are tricky. Which one is it? Anyway, thank you guys for listening, as always, and uh, we will see you on the next episode. All right? Thanks for having me. All right, Don. Signing off. Bye-bye.